0: podcast coming to you today for a very special interview first of a two-part interview in some ways because tomorrow is 30 years to the day that Sydney was announced as the host of the 2000 Olympic Games back when Olympic cities were announced in pomp and pageantry and there was always a big deal about it people remember of course People lining the streets of Sydney back in 1993 on September 23rd, celebrating at Circular Key, the entire country of Australia went into hysterics. And today and tomorrow, we've got two special interviews coming your way to celebrate this occasion with two men who were involved in some way or another with either the bid or the Olympics themselves. Now today, we are starting that off with a man who has been simply dubbed the master of ceremonies. This guy, if you think of famous Olympic opening and closing ceremony moments, there's probably a high chance that Rick Birch was the man who came up with that idea because Rick Birch has been involved in numerous Olympic ceremonies over the last 40 years. His first one that he ever was involved in in terms of the Olympics was Los Angeles in 1984. He was then involved in Barcelona in 1992. He also went on to do Turin in 2006, Beijing in 2008, and what we're here to talk to him about today, Sydney, Sydney. 2000. This was the man who came up with the opening and closing ceremonies and essentially all those memories that you remember of Kathy and the cauldron. You remember Nikki Webster. You remember the closing ceremony with Kylie on a thong and even going back to Atlanta to the handover ceremony, the infamous kangaroos on bikes. Rick Birch is the man who came up with those ideas. And we are so thrilled to learn more about Rick and his involvement in the Olympics. He's going to talk a lot about here, about obviously Sydney 2000, the ideas, how some of those ones that I touched on came about, how he got involved in the Sydney Olympic bid, as well as just how much he would have been involved had Brisbane or Melbourne gotten the Olympics in 92 or 96, ahead of when Sydney got the Olympics ultimately in 2000. Some great thoughts on the modern opening ceremony, just what he thinks of how the opening ceremony has developed into what it has today. And I already mentioned it, uh, Nikki Webster. We're going to talk a lot about Nikki Webster in this interview as well. And you've heard me talk about some ideas in the past for Brisbane 2032. I put them to Rick and we find out whether or not my ideas have any weight for the 2032 opening or closing ceremonies. Sit back, relax, and listen. This is a fantastic interview. You're going to get so much out of it. Our chat with the master of ceremonies, Mr. Rick Burr. <laughs> Tomorrow marks 30 years since Sydney was announced as a host of the 2000 Olympic Games and as part of our 30-year celebration of that iconic day, I'm delighted to be able to welcome our next guest to the show who played a key part in making the Sydney Olympics the greatest Olympics of all time. Now, Rick Birch was the executive producer and main director of ceremonies for both the opening and closing ceremonies for the Sydney Olympics delivering two of the most iconic Olympic ceremonies ever witnessed. And outside of his involvement in the Sydney Olympics, Rick has also played a part in other iconic Olympic opening and closing ceremonies, including the 1984 Los Angeles Summer Olympics, the 1992 Barcelona Summer Olympics, the 2006 Turin Winter Olympics, and the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics. And to learn more about his roles in these, as well as his part in the Sydney Olympics, it's such an honor to welcome off the podium today, the one, the only Mr. Rick Birch. Rick, welcome to the program today. (laughs) <laughs> G'day, Ben. Thank you. It's such an honor, mate. And I, I get through all of that, and I feel like I've only scratched the surface on just uh, your involvement in, in Olympics and everything else. But we're having, a, we're having a bit of a chat off air, and it's said to you 30 years tomorrow it will be since Sydney was announced as a host of the Olympic Games. I mean, that, that must be hard to believe that it's been that long, Rich. It just seems like yesterday.
1: Well, yeah, in many ways, although the very first ceremony I did was Brisbane in 82 for the Commonwealth Games, and that's a very long time ago now too. But, again, it doesn't seem that long ago. So uh, time time's relative, as Mr. Einstein said.
0: <laughs> it flies when you're having fun as well. So uh, th- th- yeah. that kind of works. I, just, I want to touch just really briefly on how you even got involved in ceremonies, Rick, because I believe – you wanted to be a lawyer at one stage. How, how do you go to university, find your way trying to be a lawyer, and end up basically being the master of ceremonies for all thing Olympics for, for close to 40, 50 years or so now?
1: Yeah, well, obviously, I, I read the wrong book. Um, it's <laughs> not true, though. It's not true that I ever wanted to be a lawyer. I was uh, given vocational guidance at school because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And they said, you can do anything. So that didn't sort things out much and I went to Melbourne University to do an arts law course and found out that arts was a lot more fun than law because it involved theatre. And I spent a lot of time in student theatre actually and that got me started. Then I went into television, worked with the ABC and uh, in the 80s I was an executive producer of entertainment with ABC television in Sydney. and they got the host broadcaster gig for the 1982 Brisbane Commonwealth Games. And uh, the Commonwealth Games organizers had a competition for a ceremonies producer, and I pitched on behalf of the ABC and we won. And so that was my first ceremony up in Brisbane in 1982, following which the LA organizers, who'd had a couple of uh, observers there, called and said would i be interested in coming to la so of course i was and had a great time in los angeles and that was the start after that i never went back to television
0: that's incredible what 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 do you have to submit for a competition for an opening ceremony is it just i'm going to have a giant winking kangaroo called matilda is that it and that gets you over the line
1: usually yeah yeah I've, i've only only used that once um No, it's actually far more complicated these days, of course, and very expensive. Back in 81, we we pitched in 81, um, it involved me and a guy named Alan Bateman, who was head of the entertainment department at the time, it involved us both flying up to Brisbane and working out on a piece of paper on the way up how many kids would fit into an arena the size of the QE2 Stadium. And uh, we did that on a pocket calculator, one of those credit card sized pocket calculators, bit of pi r squared and divided by the number of school children in Brisbane. And anyway, so when we got to the Commonwealth Games Foundation, we went through the pitch and said what was in the show just described it. We didn't have any particularly good graphic aids or anything. Um, and finally, in the end, they said, now have you checked your numbers and figures? And Alan said, oh, yes, it's all been run through a computer. So they were very impressed because computers were pretty special back in 81. <laughs> um, and that's how we get the gig, basically. Wow. And from then on, I mean, it gets more complicated. By Beijing, um, Zhang Mo was using, you know, 3D animated computer presentations to tell the story to the party leaders, um, and it's very expensive, costs you, you know, up to a thousand dollars a second to put that sort of stuff together. So unfortunately, it's become so expensive and challenging these days that only big companies and people who have done it before are in the running, whereas when I started, um, there, you know, there was no infrastructure, there were no expectations. And we could do pretty much what we wanted.
0: Because it's changed so much too, just in terms of what an opening ceremony or a closing ceremony is, right? I mean, obviously LA is renowned for its groundbreaking nature of what it did for opening ceremonies. And obviously Moscow had a little bit of that two, four years prior. But prior to that, I mean, opening ceremonies were almost very formal, very, very regal and sort of television sort of changed a lot of that too. But I mean, you sort of, you joined almost in the golden age of uh, ceremonies when you got involved with them.
1: Well, yeah, and I mean, in my own small way, I was probably part of the change because prior to eighty-two, the Commonwealth Games were fairly militaristic, and you know they involved honor guards and marching soldiers and rifles being fired and twenty-one gun salutes, and the normally a, a royal would arrive and inspect the guard, and there was a lot of that, and athletes marched rather than sauntered, and. Um, so I saw Moscow when uh, God, that was 80, so I would have been about 35 at the time and was you know, blown away by it. I thought it was absolutely amazing. And then uh, two years later, when we were in Brisbane, that was the one to aim for. So I was trying not to do military parades, but was trying to go for entertainment, which worked pretty well then in 84 in Los Angeles, yeah, we were definitely going for entertainment, but then we we're in Los Angeles with Hollywood and music films, television headquarters. So that was not unexpected. And I think from then on, it, it certainly set the expectation that a ceremony is, I mean, I don't want to say entertaining in a way that makes it sound like it's lightweight. That's not the idea at all, but that it is a celebration uh, rather than a military pageant, a celebration of the host city.
0: Was it your idea for the jetpack in 84, Rick? Was that you?
1: <laughs> well, in fact, he'd, he'd already been to Melbourne oh. before 1984. His name's Kenny Gibson, and Kenny had uh, been down in Melbourne for... A Royal show and he he'd done his jetpack in the Melbourne Park and everyone was bored Uh, And then in Los Angeles after Los Angeles. He made an absolute fortune People were calling him from all over the world to come and fly at their events including Melbourne. I I think they had him back
0: Wow, fantastic fantastic fast forward to Sydney when it comes to Sydney putting in that bid as we know, of course, Brisbane had failed in 92. Melbourne had failed in 96. Sydney ultimately get the gig 93 for 2000. Were were you sort of always just touted by everybody who put in a bid for the Olympics? I had Brisbane got it in 92 or Melbourne got it in 96. Were you sort of the guy based on the experience that you had and sort of third time lucky Sydney, you just got that gig kind of Monaco 1993 when they got it?
1: Um, not, not exactly, it wasn't a, a lay down, the IOC commissions decided, the Olympia, back in those days decided it's seven years out, so that um, Barcelona in 92 was decided in 85, and then Sydney was decided in 93, For in fact for Brisbane, um, which was up against Barcelona, I was actually producing the event where in in australia where we were watching the the results coming in on the tv screen and we were ready to drop balloons from the ceiling if necessary as it turned out we just sort of didn't drop the balloons and had a quiet dinner instead <laughs> but, but um, yeah probably if brisbane had got the games in 92 i would certainly have been a part of it melbourne not so much ron ron walker was a very staunch melbourne person and I came from Sydney, so I don't think Ron would have allowed me to.
0: That didn't stop him from getting on the phone to you, though, for Melbourne 2006. Wasn't he begging you to be involved in the Commonwealth Games, though?
1: (laughs) No, no, it was too late by then. I'd left Australia. (laughs) Um, But uh, then, apart from Melbourne, uh, Sydney, well, yeah, Sydney I was involved with from the beginning, and I wrote part of the description of ceremonies in the the official bid book. Um, there was still a competition, but by then it was a bit difficult for anyone else because I'd already done two Olympics by the time that Sydney came around.
0: Which, of course, at that time, famously Barcelona. I mean, we talk about moments, we talk about the jetpack in 84, we talk about the archer in, in Barcelona, which I'd yeah. love to ask a little bit outside of that. But the, the thing that I find fascinating, Rick, is there's a great, documentary on on YouTube that was obviously aired just on the eve of when Sydney was announced as the Olympic host city. And it sort of talks to a bunch of key people involved in the bid and sort of what they were planning to bring to Sydney. And there was a brief interview with you in that where you mentioned even before Sydney got announced that if it does, the idea of Aussie spirit would be behind the opening ceremony, you know, seven years at that point later, which was a key theme to that. So you were obviously already kind of having ideas then moving forward that, you know, we get announced as a host city, this is what I want to be. I mean, was that always the key, Aussie spirit, that's what you wanted to showcase in that opening ceremony?
1: Gosh, how ghost of me, Aussie spirit. I don't know, maybe I was thinking of beer. Um, (laughs) I was going to ask, where was all the beer
0: in the opening ceremony, Rick? Like, come on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, we we had to change as we went along. No, actually, I've got no memory of of that interview. So I don't know what I was thinking at the time, but certainly as soon as Sydney was a, a candidate, yeah, I, I started thinking I didn't want to hex anything by by having ideas that couldn't be done in the end. But I was very conscious in Monaco when the announcement came out and, and Juan Antonio Samaranch said, to Sydney at that very moment, John Fay, the premier at the time, leapt high in the air. I was more or less at the back of the stadium. And he was down the front, and the whole front row leapt up in the air doing Toyota ads as they sort of <laughs> celebrated. And at that exact moment, I started thinking about the lighting of the culture and the piece that finally Kathy did. Um, but it, as as they were jumping in the air, I was thinking of, surf of of waves coming down the stadium and a group of lifesavers climbing up through the surf to the top of the stadium to light a torch which was going to be gas coming through the water so there was going to be a flame coming out of the water so that was the initial thought I had right at that minute and uh, so it changed a bit over the years but we kept the elements of gas and water and lighting it under extreme difficulties i'm glad you brought that up
0: because i was going to ask you about having that idea then uh, is that just a common thing for you rick that these ideas will just hit you at at moments and do you always keep like a little notebook with you to kind of so you don't forget them
1: um well it's it's happened so far. i mean i've retired now so i don't have to rely on it anymore but yeah in in the past I have had all all my key ideas have have come very quickly and and very visually so that you know I kind of see see the whole sequence and and I don't I don't have to tease it out it arrives fully formed.
0: Did you ever try and explore the idea of adding sort of surf lifesavers to that that moment or did it sort of as it developed it was just like no Kathy torch flames platform that's all we need.
1: <laughs> Well, I I would love to have done the the uh, surf thing. The problem was that initially the well the stadium hadn't been designed at that point. So I actually did brief three different groups of architects. The guys who were designing Sydney Stadium. There was a competition between three architectural groups, and I addressed them all and told them that I wanted the north end stadium waterproof. Uh, I didn't go into big detail, but I said I did want to pour water down it. And however, once the stadium had been designed, and I was working with Obarap, who were the engineers, it became apparent that we we just couldn't tip enough water down it um, to make it look impressive enough. You know, I wanted waves wave six feet deep, which would have emptied Sydney Harbour had we tried <laughs> to tip it down there. So we we ended up with. A, a more circumspect waterfall, but also um, John Coates and the and Michael Knight and the powers of of uh, SOCOG decided that they would um, not have the athletes seated in the stands. Whereas initially, when Sydney won the bid, we. Were required actually to have the stadiums already seated, the athletes already seated in the stands, which was going to be the first time because the athletes complain that they never see the ceremony; Mm, they're always stuck outside the stadium. So Sydney, as part of the bid agreement, agreed that they would have the athletes seated in the stadium. And my my plan was always, as the athletes left the stadium and left their seats in the stand, that was where we were going to have the waterfall. As it happened, um, it was decided to put the athletes outside and sell off the seats. And so most of that stadium, in fact, was full of spectators, so we couldn't have flooded it anyway.
0: Fascinating. It's also fascinating to think that you, in a way, have a say in the design of a stadium. Is, it, is that common for, like, an opening ceremony or a ceremonies person to kind of have that or is that just the Rick Birch effect? Like, I get a say in how this stadium's <laughs> going to be
1: designed. Well, yeah, it's part of it. Um, no, well, I've, well. In fact, yeah, we do have an impact on the design because, firstly, the cauldron, which is the critical part of the ceremony, and architects always ignore it. Like the architect for Sydney had no plan whatsoever for a, a, a cauldron at the stadium. They said, "We'll put it in the main square of the village. That's that's where it's going to look good. We'll put it in the main square." And I said, that's ridiculous. You know, the whole point of the ceremony, it culminates with the torch coming in from Greece and it's going to light the cauldron and that inspires the athletes, inspires the audience, and it signifies the game's the beginning. You can't do it like a barbecue down in the village where you light a flame. And so the architects then said, oh, well, yeah, well, maybe we'll hang it from the roof. And I said, because, you know, they didn't have a clue where to put it, where the audience could see it. And I said, no, well, that doesn't work because everyone's going to look up and only see the underneath of the cauldron. They're not going to see the flame. So anyway, um, I did have to get involved in the design of the stadium as far as the cauldron, which meant we had to have water and gas and all that had to be put in underground before they constructed the stands above it. So in, in that sense, we get involved, um, not, not in the design so much as just, Telling them what we need in the way of infrastructure, and they come up with an engineering solution to it.
0: That must make your blood absolutely boil, Rick. That at Beijing last year, it was just simply let's put a let's put the flame, the co- the torch in a holder and rise it up, right? Like save money, right? Come <laughs> on, oh, that was so lazy, Beijing 2022.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, Beijing um, was the Bird's Nest. This is a very tricky spot to light a. Uh, the same same problem architects not thinking about it from the beginning
0: which i mean that's where you just get somebody running around the top of it but maybe we can uh, we can touch on that a little bit once sydney is announced so and kind of you officially know it's it's happening are you basically on september 24th getting your notebook out and writing further ideas i mean do you need that seven-year process to really make sure that you've got everything perfect for september 15 2000
1: no, no, Sydney was different in several ways. Um, the the first part of an Olympic ceremony that that a host city gets involved with is actually the flag handover at um, the prior, the Olympics prior, so that in the closing ceremony the mayor of the incoming city receives the Olympic flag and there's usually some sort of 10 minute, 12 minute cultural display. Kangaroos on bikes, Rick,
0: kangaroos on bikes.
1: (laughs) That's the one, best best one ever. Um, But in Sydney's case, I got the gig to do the uh, handover ceremony as well as the opening closing ceremonies. So uh, that was unusual. Normally I don't get involved in the handover and I normally only get involved two to maybe three years maximum before. But in Sydney, I was there for five years, um, wow. so I was able to do the, the handover and then start. But two to three years is, is about right for the opening closing ceremonies. It's
0: something that I always thoroughly enjoy in a closing ceremony is that handover ceremony. And it's it's something that has kind of slowly waned, I feel, over the years, just that significance of it. Because it is kind of that 10, 12-minute selling point, isn't it? Like, you've enjoyed the last 16 days of these Olympics, but... Join us in four years. The youth of the world, as the president will always say, converge on this city in the next four years. I mean, is that almost more pressure to produce a very succinct little package that is selling that on a level that in four years' time, you're going to have a little bit longer to try and kind of, you know, signify that city to the world?
1: Well, a couple of things. In 84, up until 84, the closing ceremony, the flag handover was in the opening ceremony. And it was normally at the beginning of the, you know, you only got the Olympic flag at the opening ceremony of your Olympics, which was obscure because you'd already been the Olympic city for four years. Mm. But so we changed, we changed that in '84. David Walper, who was my boss, um, was the one who instigated. He said this is crazy to get the flag at the opening ceremony. He said that should be given to the incoming city at the closing. So we did that for Seoul, South Korea, as part of the closing ceremony in Los Angeles. And after that, it always became part of the closing. And, yeah, it's true. It's a, it's a mini theatrical production. And you want to show off your country. In Atlanta in 96, when I did the, the famous ruse on bikes and the rest of it, um, the whole point of that was to make an impact um, so that people would remember. And as you say, they've been watching sport for 16 days in a particular city. It's it's a fairly good chance to remind billions of people around the world that it's going to continue in four years in another city. And in fact, it was successful in Atlanta because the morning after the closing, we got the front page on the Atlanta newspaper, not not the American closing ceremony, it was the Australian ceremony that got the front page picture, which. Meant from my point of view, it was very successful in telling people where the next games were going to be. I love that
0: level of humour that always involves, I feel, Australians that was a closing ceremony, I believe, of Sydney when you sort of had that whole, like, uh, it was what a camera person was going around trying to get into the centre and you had that sort of reference to the, the kangaroos on bikes because that obviously... Caused some interesting conversations back in Australia back in the day, didn't it, about that, which uh, it was always, what, like making fun of that kind of notion that these were made fun of almost back in the day.
1: Yeah, I, to this day, never understand exactly what the problem with the kangaroos on bikes was. I think Alan Jones um, was very against it for whatever reason, and so he, he became splenetic on radio about these kangaroos on bikes and that led to a huge uproar but in fact it was all totally inoffensive these were kids riding bikes they had inflatable kangaroos strapped to their backs and part of the reason was that originally the plan was that they would ride their bikes in and the kangaroos would inflate on stage but we found in a couple of cases the inflation didn't happen because something had gone wrong in the backpacks and so the the safest way to do it was to pre-inflate them so that they could ride onto the Atlanta arena already with the kangaroos inflated on their backs to make sure that later on in the ceremony if they had to go, had to be inflated and they didn't work, that they weren't left with this embarrassing limp rubber thing hanging out of their backpack. So that was actually the the reason that it ended up having roos cycling in but it looked so great. First rehearsal we saw is Stephen Page, who was the director and I were there. Stephen is Aboriginal and he was obviously a bit more horrified than I was. I thought it was hysterical watching these kangaroos on bikes coming in. So I said, we've got to do this. We've got to keep it this way. And I still think it was one of the great moments in any Olympic ceremony to see 12 kids cycling and on bikes just as kangaroos.
0: I, I, I always loved it. I was, what, nine at the time. It was my target demographic, Rick. I loved every second of it. And I say, <laughs> in you know, five years time when the handover ceremony happens in L.A. in 2028, bring them back. Bring them back for Brisbane 2030. I mean, are they in a shed somewhere? Can we find them? Do you think they're available somewhere?
1: I've actually got a bicycle and a kangaroo in a backpack in my basement in Los Angeles. Wow. And I offered it to the power, offered it to the power museum in Sydney and they said, they're not interested. Oh. So there you go.
0: Well, it's already in LA. You've got half the, but you don't have to ship it anywhere. They can just get it. You've got it in a basement, Rick. You just solved
1: the issue. <laughs> Perfect. Well, there it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's I yours. love that.
0: Fantastic. Good idea. LA 2028, if you're listening, contact Rick. He's got him ready for you to go for that, for that handover ceremony. I mean, that time though, I mean, is there like an initial boardroom meeting that you've got the ceremonies crew? You are just sitting there. All right, we've done this bit. Now it's the opening ceremony and closing ceremony of Sydney. All right. Any ideas? Like, Is it just a whiteboard session for that very first idea or I mean, how does, how does it, you start planning an Olympic opening ceremony?
1: Well, I don't know about other producers and directors, but I try and have an overall vision for the, the whole ceremony. Um, and yeah, in fact, for, for Sydney, we had um, a couple of weekend retreats for, I don't know, probably about 20, 20 guys that, and girls that I'd sort of chosen for their creativity, their ideas from theatre, film, television. And so we had a couple of weekend retreats uh, at a place called Guingana up in the Gold Coast where I went and I brought in a couple of guys who'd done ceremonies before in, in Atlanta or Barcelona. Um, and we kind of talked through the ceremonies and not just the creativity involved, but the logistics involved, how you have to deal with the athletes, how you handle the preparations, how you do rehearsals, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of the show without worrying too much about the creative content. Um, and the way I start, anyway, is I decide who I want to get involved as directors, choreographers, designers, and so on. And then go through the show as it is in my mind, which at least has a shape. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I hated having. Um, essays in school when the teacher just say write an essay about whatever you like and um, it was never as good as being given a topic mm. so I always think that for, for a ceremony it's better to give the creative team a starting point so I would always go through the ceremony and with some sort of creative overview not, not very detailed and then portion off segments of the ceremony to individual directors and creating designers and so on. And then let him run with it and see where it went, keep an eye on it. The, some ideas would just take off and run, some ideas wouldn't go anywhere, so we'd start again. Um, it's not quite a whiteboard thing, but sometimes it is. a lot of production meetings, people sitting around, throwing ideas around. It, the, and as always you instantly recognize the great ideas someone comes up with just an idea a spark or a moment that leads to other things um it, does, it funnily enough I've never had a problem putting the creatives together after after that the hard work is, Making it happen you know, to to actually build it and get the right people in and get the performers rehearsal the music the, the costumes the props etc cetera, etc cetera, et cetera. that's all just work the the fun parts at the beginning coming up with the show
0: is there a IOC template in the fact of they say okay you need you know the the specifics you need the athletes you need the oath you need the you know all those sort of things but then do they say you've got four hours or like is it a case of you're kind of controlled by a rough time frame of, hey, maybe you can do it within this period. I mean, how does all that template work so that you can fit your creative ideas into all the things that you obviously have to showcase in an Olympic opening ceremony?
1: Well, that's changed over the years and I've probably had a hand in some of it because I've, I've been involved in developing the, the so-called technical manuals for ceremonies that the IOC produced now. We didn't have one in the beginning, um, but yeah, the the protocol moments in in the ceremony are the official speeches, um, the oaths by the athletes and the judge, the raising the Olympic flag, singing of the Olympic hymn, and the lighting of the cauldron. And those are, and of course the march of the athletes, and those are specifically mentioned in the technical manuals as these moments shall be done in such a way, but they can also be interpreted creatively, which the IOC is always very keen on. Um, And the the part of the ceremony that people tend to remember, which is the first 45 minutes to an hour, is not really mentioned in the technical manuals. That's just seen as up to each host city, how it wants to present itself before the March of the Athletes.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that because... One thing that we notice, I think more so in the modern ceremonies is the sort of the cultural displays that do signify those opening 45 minutes to an hour seem to almost be getting less and less. They kind of just do it for 20 minutes and now let's get the athletes in or let's do this, let's do that. Like to me, what was always great about an opening ceremony is you almost just had that opening hour of let's learn about this city. Let's learn about this country. And we seem to have lost that now. I mean, how important is that to hook the people in? Because that's the selling point, right? Like that's the headline. Here's a man on a horse. Here are all the drovers <laughs> coming in. Here's Nikki yeah. Webster. Like I want to watch this rather than sit here for another 90 minutes and go, oh, well, here are the athletes. Great, but I want more Nikki Webster.
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad you glad you were there on the night, oh, we'll get to Nikki. Um, Don't
0: worry, Rick. There's at- a whole hour on Nikki Webster <laughs> <laughs> questions. Here we go. <laughs>
1: um Look, I'm I'm with you. I I think that the challenge, obviously, is to make the 45 minutes to an hour riveting and the sort of thing that you can't stop watching. I think if it if it is potentially boring, then you know it shouldn't be very long at all. There's always been controversy over the parade of the athletes whether it should go for two hours or three hours. Um, and the reality is television networks love the parade of the athletes because they get good ratings and they don't care if it goes for four hours they'll get great ratings for four hours and they'll sell advertisements so any time that we try and shorten it which i did for sydney i came up with a way of shortening it in sydney which nbc shot down and uh, so we were stuck with the same parade length as usual, which is fine. I mean, it just does take a while, That's all. And the other thing that has happened over the years is that the athletes have become less and less disciplined. And whereas they used to march in in order and keep in line, now they don't, you know, you, you see, and they carry their cameras and they're having a really good time. And who can blame them, they're 20 years old and they're in a stadium in front of a world audience. That's what they've trained for. And so, of course, they're going to behave like 20-year-olds. And <laughs> uh, it, it does take a while sometimes to herd them into lines and get them to keep marching.
0: I've got to ask, what's the idea to shorten the athlete parade that NBC didn't like?
1: Oh, well, we were going to... This was when we were bringing the athletes from the stands when they were seated at the northern end. I was going to bring them down through internal staircases and then we were going to have a new gate in the stadium directly opposite the VIP stand, so across the short part of the stadium, not the long ways, the short way, um, and bring the athletes in. We could bring them in 16 wide at that point and then split them half-half to go around wow. the the track, track and then meet up again in front of the VIPs and march back into the field at that point. Now, it wouldn't have made much difference for the small teams, but for the big teams, America, Australia, Canada, Britain, um, who bring in hundreds of athletes, if you can march them in 16 wide instead of 8 wide, that makes you know, halves the time, obviously. And uh, anyway, Dick Ebersole of NBC said, no, that's rubbish. We're we're going to do it the same old way. And Michael Knight said, I'm with him. So...
0: Wow, there it, was. there it was. Hello, NBC. If they're they're always listening. I, I'm sure. How, when it comes to all those cultural aspects, though, just outside of that, when it comes to some of the performances, do you come together, or is there one director who's in control of getting the talent? Where you're like, we got to get John Farnham. We've got to get Olivia Newton John. Like you got to get the big names, because I mean that that in a way is always some something to draw you into an opening ceremony, is it? Who is Australia's biggest singer? Who is LA's biggest singer, like it's kind of that that talent right and do you remember a list of names you put down on a board of John Farnham, Olivia Newton-John were there ones that you just couldn't get for the opening ceremony that you really wanted
1: Well, it's funny in 84 my first Olympics with David Wolper David said listen Rick the Olympics are bigger than any individual performer and he said we can get anyone we want and um, in, the, the, in the end of the opening ceremony it was um, Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand was a song, which was a big Diana Ross hit. Hmm. And so I, so I said, David, we get Diana Ross. And he said, no, because this is the Olympics. It's not the Diana Ross concert show. Wow. And we had auditions for a singer. And ended up, and Lund- I can't remember her name, but she was a checkout chick at a supermarket with an unbelievable voice. And she she won the audition. She was fantastic. And she sang, um, not not Diana Ross. And so that was David's approach. We had Etta James was in the show and Lionel Richie was in closing. But we really didn't go for stars and we're in Los Angeles, so we could have had anyone we wanted. Marvin Hamlish did the reach out and touch orchestration for us. John Williams wrote the theme. I say you got John Williams um, at
0: least. That was a pretty big coup. <laughs>
1: yeah, oh, he was fantastic to work with. Um, I had different, quite well-known performers calling me, auditioning on the phone, saying, "Rick, here's here's a guitar piece. Here's a piano piece. Can I do?" Like this? who, Rick? Can you um, can you
0: spill the secrets? <laughs> like who?
1: <laughs> no, I've i'm not going to damn but in, in in australia it was different because obviously we don't have the same star power as hollywood and we have at the same time stars like indeed olivia and john um and they they seemed appropriate for australia that was part of our identity in a way that probably american singers are not quite apart from i don't know bruce springsteen probably is identify of the American. Um, but John Farnham is absolutely identifiable as an Australian and certainly in 2000 and the same with Olivia. Um, so there was no question really that if we were going to have performances that obviously we would want to have the best Australian performers to do them. And I think in the end we had a fantastic selection of
0: them well the the two that you birthed we'll talk about nikki but the one that often gets overlooked from sydney 2000 vanessa amorosi was basically created because of sydney 2000 and what a talent i mean she she's also i think become the go-to ceremony person because she was in melbourne she was a handover for i think manchester to melbourne and they used her in Birmingham to hand over to the one that aren't happening anymore. But like the point is like Vanessa was what, 17, was she not at the time? And she kind of got that gig was a bit overlooked over because of Nikki, but just as a talented, if not even no disrespect yes. to Nikki, even more talented than Nikki.
1: No, Vanessa had an amazing voice, but she, she was, no, I mean, she was, we knew about it because she was doing very well on hit parades. I mean, she had some big hits at the time. Um, but an incredible voice sure. and that's why she was there yeah we we did miss out we did miss out on Barry Humphreys I'd uh. asked Barry and I can say now because poor Barry is no longer with us but I've known Barry for years and I said in the closing ceremony we'd we'd have a piece for Dame Edna in that and then I thought it'd actually be more fun to have Sir Liz than Dame Edna because yes sir les would have just totally upended the closing ceremony and we got close but in the end barry decided not to that that's probably my greatest sadness to do with the olympic Damn. ceremony since that barry wasn't part of them
0: yeah i mean the closing ceremonies you had that great parade with what like paul hogan kylie el mcpherson greg norman like it was such a fun little uh little carriage that would that would have been but you had the they in the glasses though didn't you on one of the the thong things didn't you from memory Sorry, the witch. The, did you have the giant Dame Edna glasses in the closing ceremony, though, on one of the floats from memory? Uh, uh, uh,
1: uh, I don't think so. Right, okay. I, can't, I certainly can't, can't remember it. It's a, we had, of course, the thongs for Kylie, the flip-flops, Um no, I don't remember, John. Uh, i may be making something up. There. Maybe.
0: Maybe I'm dreaming of yeah. Brisbane 2032, Rick. I, I mean, I've got to, I've got to you ask. Go, that's
1: an idea. You're, you're writing this down somewhere. Mate,
0: trust me. Yeah. Well, we've got some ideas and I need you to pass on very soon. We'll get to that. But, I mean, <laughs> the, the great thing about Nikki, at the, the time of us recording this, it's been a week removed since the, the Women's World Cup wrapped up and, the Matilda sort of use strawberry kisses by Nikki Webster as a bit of an anthem. And we've just seen her emerge on stage at the Matilda celebration and everyone's like, wow, Nikki Webster, there she is. And it's, it's been fantastic, but I don't think people really understand how big of a deal Nikki was on the 16th of September, 2000, basically after her performance. And you also birthed this trend of using a child to Emerge the world in an opening ceremony. Athens did it four years later, if I'm not mistaken. I think you did it again in Beijing, You're London. I mean, kids lit the goddamn cauldron. I mean, they've stolen your idea, Rick. But what was this idea about using a young child? And can you can you remember meeting Nikki for the first time and creating this Australian icon that is Nikki Webster?
1: Well, yeah, yes, and yes. Um, the idea for using a young person was obviously symbolic for Australia, being a a young country. Um, And Nikki's role in that was just to symbolise a young, innocent country and, you know, it grew from there. But, yeah, meeting Nikki was amazing. She was already well-known theatrically. I mean, she was performing on stage in Sydney by then. She was an actress. Um, But the, the breathtaking thing about Nikki was that she was 13, not quite 14, during 2000, but she looked about 9 or 10. Um, and that, that was exactly what we wanted, this sort of young, freckle-faced, innocent little girl gambling around the field. And and it worked so well, because Nikki was so free and innocent. With all this pressure on her, she seemed to be enjoying herself. And I think she probably was. She's an amazing performer. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, I, ha- I have a daughter who's a bit younger than Nikki, and she was furious that I did not give her the gig. She <laughs> has still never forgiven me. <laughs> wow. All she wanted to do was fly, fly in the air like Nikki Webster. But uh, yeah, Nikki, Nikki was amazing. We, we had several contenders, um, but Nikki was without question by far the
0: best i i love that idea of what every single time there's some sort of sydney 2000 anniversary your daughter just like don't be involved in it dad bugger off like come on <laughs> she hates nikki West. she hears strawberry kisses and just gets angry uh, <laughs> that could have been me <laughs> i like i like this idea but do you have much of a say in who gets to light the cauldron or is that purely like an aoc so cog idea and if so where do Kathy's, Was Kathy's name an early one that was touted sort of because I remember the secrecy around that, and all the speculation of who's lining the cauldron. I mean, can you tell us a bit about that process about how Kathy gets selected?
1: Um, Well, it, it's very much an Olympic decision. It's an organizing committee decision. No, and I've never, never been involved in the decision. Uh, I just get told the result. I, I think for 2000, John Coates knew from the beginning that it was going to be women. It was the year of the women in Olympics anyway. Um, so John was, I think, completely instrumental in the choice of who who was there and who lit the cauldron. I mean, looking back, Kathy is the obvious choice, um, and was certainly she was being touted around in the press more than anyone else, but. We, we didn't find out until only a few days before. And, of course, Kathy had to rehearse with the cauldron and the lighting of the cauldron, which she did the night before. Um, poor darling, she got saturated, soaked with spray, and we, she wasn't feeling too good anyway. She a real trooper and kept going. Uh, norm, normally, we do rehearse with the, the torchbearer. They come into the stadium, usually under complete secrecy, like Muhammad Ali in 96, I was there for the rehearsal. And, you know, it was you know, very secure. Um, and with, with Kathy, in fact, we were rehearsing about midnight and one of the security guards showed up with his family. He'd brought the family to the stadium just to show them around. And <laughs> there was a security guard and his family taking photos of Kathy <laughs> lighting the cauldron. Wow. Until until we spotted him and said, no, don't do anything with those photos or you're going to lose your job. So they were very good and they didn't say anything. But uh, yeah, we try and keep it secret, not because it is a secret so much as we just want to keep it for a surprise.
0: That's fascinating because, I mean, how would you get away with that today when all he would have had to do is take a picture on a phone and it's on Twitter in five minutes, whereas at least (laughs) that was the biggest thing. I think everybody that night, was just still speculating like, you know, it's like five o'clock on that Friday afternoon. Everyone's like, who's doing it? Who's doing it? And then, you know, you, you, as you mentioned, it was what, a hundred years of, of women in the Olympics. So you had, you know, Shane Gould, Betty Cuthbert, all these icons sort of in the stadium and then handing it over to to Kathy. I mean, it's just, does that does that make you, when you get to that moment, we'll talk about those three minutes, 40, that were probably the longest of your life in a moment. But like when when you get to that point, you realize it, I guess has been kept a secret because, as far as I remember, it wasn't leaked. That was an absolute secret until the moment Kathy got that torch.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing that was, for me, a, a very welcome surprise was that we had two, I can't remember, it was two or three rehearsals before the opening now, at least I think two, full-dress rehearsals with a, an audience and the audience were invited. They were the parents and friends, teachers of the performers um, so we had 100,000 people at each of the rehearsals and David Atkins and I went on the stage before the, the rehearsal and I said to the, the crowd, listen, we're thrilled that you're going to be here, we're thrilled that we can put the show on, but we just have one request and that is do not share the content of the ceremonies and certainly don't share photographs until you know, opening night and as far as I know, no one did. And no newspaper ever, ever published a photo from any of the rehearsals. There was no discussion in the papers. Whereas before that, we'd had helicopters coming over for rehearsals. We'd had journalists trying to join the rehearsals as performers mm-hmm. and so on. All, also, they could run spoiler stories saying, this is what's in the stadium show. And I actually did a TV appearance early when it started to happen. And I was on TV saying, I don't know why you want to spoil the ceremony by telling everyone what's in it. You'll find out soon enough. It's not like you will never get to see the show. We, But there are 10,000 people, um, sorry, more, 13,000 in Sydney, 13,000 people who've been rehearsing to do this, to present it to you, and all you networks are trying to do is to spoil it. And so after that, it turned around a bit. And... Television viewers said, yeah, we don't want to know. And so suddenly the the media stopped trying to spoil the story and I think it was much more successful for that reason.
0: Were those three minutes and 40 seconds where that cauldron (coughs) would not move the longest three minutes and 40 seconds of your life, Rick?
1: Well, second only to our technical director, um, who's a fabulous Texan tech director named Morris Leider, And I'd met Morris in Barcelona, actually, in 92. He was a production manager for U2 and Genesis and Pink Floyd and Rolling Stone. So he's one of the world's greats. And he ended up marrying an Australian girl and moved to Sydney. So that was a great opportunity. So I hired Morris as a technical director and didn't worry about anything technical from that moment on. And so at the the opening ceremony, um, we had a... The waterfall effect, which came down the Northern Stand, was built some months before the actual ceremony. And I was there one day after a football match and I saw a couple of Coca-Cola cans had been thrown into the waterfall. And I thought at the time, oh, God, if that happens on the night, there's a chance that a Coke can could get caught up in the cogs of the the thing that's... The cauldron could get jammed, and I thought, "Oh, if that happens, we don't want it to run out of gas." So I said to Morris Lido, um, "Can you get any more gas in the cauldron in case there's a delay?" So he came back next day and said, "Yeah, we've fixed it. No worries." And so I stopped worrying. And then uh, on the on the night, Morris was looking rather white, and uh, there are other things. Going on, I was starting to write a voiceover piece for the announcer who was going to say, Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for. <laughs> da, 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 da. And, you view know, you, you the fireworks, and you know, hopefully get an umbilical cord of gas or something to the cauldron. It, uh, as it turned out, Morris told me later that the, the cauldron stopped for a reason, and no one will ever know why. We honestly don't know why. There were three triggers that were involved in the the lift of the cauldron and each trigger signified to the computer to take the next step and what had happened is that the third of the three had triggered already Um, and so the, the cauldron mechanism started pulling uphill with the cauldron not attached correctly so then it stopped because it knew it wasn't connected properly but it had moved about six inches which was meant that the cauldron could no longer mate properly with the the carrier. Anyway, it took the guys three minutes and 40 seconds to work out what was wrong, correct it, and get it going again. And as I said, Morris was looking very white. And when it was all over, he said, Rick, you know, I told you that we've got more gas in the cauldron. He said, I lied. We couldn't. There was no more room. (laughs) He he thought there was about 20 seconds of gas left when, when it, it
0: find me the cauldron. Wow. Jeez. That's incredible. I, I mean, I actually want to say that to be honest, you started a trend just like Nikki Webster started a trend with young children. You started a trend with faults in opening ceremonies. Cause if you remember Vancouver, they had the four t- cauldrons and one of them didn't work. And Sochi, one of the rings didn't light up. So I'm just saying that, it was, a, it was a plan there, right? Future opening ceremonies took that as like a, a, you know, oh, I'm going to do what Sydney did. Let's have a mistake to make it, you know, more controversial. Come on.
1: <laughs> well, in fact, in Barcelona, I asked Antonio Raboyo, who was the archer who fired the arrow, I said to Antonio, listen, you know how in circuses they do a trapeze thing? They're going, they say, and now for the first time ever in the world, we're going to do the triple somersault and drum roll, and they attempt it, and it doesn't quite work. And everyone goes, oh, and he said, but wait, we're gonna try it again. And then the second time, they do it. Yeah. And I said to Anthony, what would be really good is if you miss on the first shot. <laughs> so people people know that you know this is not mechanical, it's not, this does have risk, and it is possible to get it wrong. And so if you miss on the first one, then the second one, the crowd will go crazy. And he just looked at me and said, "I will not miss <laughs> <That
0: was it. laughs> Wow, I, I, I kind of like your idea better though. That kind of, you know, that that, that, that build-up. I will say it's. I mean, I'm mentioning to you a little bit off-air about how every time I go out to Homebush, I get a bit geeked out by everything. But the, the one that still always gets me is the cauldron there in Kathy Freeman Park. It's just, it's just there, and it's just. You know, you go to an event at Kudos Bank Arena and you've got to walk through the park to get to the train and you just walk underneath it. There's the cauldron. There's Cathy's moment. There was all that back in 2000. It just baffles me, Rick. There's so many people just walk underneath that and don't even realize what it is. I I met someone there during the World Cup who didn't know that that was it, who didn't know what it was. And I'm like, this is history. This is, you know, this is the cauldron. It just, I geek out, Rick. So I just need to mention that to you at least.
1: No, it's, it's good. I've, I've actually only been back to Homebush two or three times since Sydney, um, since Sydney 2000. And uh, you know the cauldron is definitely the cauldron. I just think it doesn't quite look right with all those spidery legs it's sitting on. Mm. The, the great thing about the cauldron was that it appeared to rise all by itself. It didn't have any visible means of support. And so now I think it, it, it you know, it, it's it's an icon, but I would rather have seen it suspended. You know how you can have fountains of water and it appears that a column of water well, Vancouver is holding do it. Up.
0: Vancouver, in downtown Vancouver, they've got their cauldron right on the waterfront with a fountain surrounding it. Kind of this is our cauldron we had. Sure. So Vancouver do something similar to that.
1: Well, so there it is. Maybe we should take Cathy's. Called to Vancouver?
0: Yeah. Well, there you yeah. go. <laughs> That's a threat. <laughs> That's, make it better, Sydney, or we'll, we'll do it. That does. Where do you, I mean? I don't know if you sort of have been obviously probably asked this question multiple times, or if you if you do this because I'm sure each of your ceremonies is probably a bit like a child rick. But do you look back at Sydney and sort of hold that above some of the other ceremonies that you've done, or do you not like to kind of rank your children? Yeah, you can't
1: can't really rank your children. They they're very much of each time. I mean, if, if I was going to do a Sydney ceremony now, it would be completely different to 2000. The world has moved on. So each one is kind of in a bubble of time. But overall, the one that I probably enjoyed the most was Barcelona. Hmm. Barcelona in 92 was just the best time. Partly because Barcelona as a city had been ignored by Franco, Generalismo Franco, the Spanish leader until he died in 79. Um, until then the Catalan language had been repressed, the Catalan people had been repressed, Barcelona had been repressed. And so suddenly Barcelona started to flower and by the Olympics um, it had redone the roads, redone the, the water, the sewerage, the pipes, the drainage, the whole city had been, the infrastructure had been replaced. And suddenly tourists discovered Barcelona and the Olympics had a great deal to do with that and in the build-up to the ceremony we were working with a lot of different creative Catalans and it was just a very exciting time and the idea of working with eight different creative directors which we did in Barcelona um, was something that I enjoyed so much that's why we had multiple directors in Sydney in Los Angeles, we only had one creative director, one designer, one choreographer, which is kind of classic Hollywood hierarchy. But in Barcelona, we had eight different people, and I found that it worked really well. And that's why in Sydney we had multiple directors. And I I think it's the best model for something like an Olympics.
0: Yeah, iconic Barcelona. You mentioned the archer, everything else that, that, that came with that. I mean, just a couple of things I want to touch on, Rick, before we let you go. I mean... I'd like to say we're a little bit critical on this show now of modern opening ceremonies. Just, you know, let's use some giant LED screens on the on the floor and, you know, let's not use props and giant things like that. Obviously, there's costs involved and budgets. I understand that. And obviously, we could probably spend another hour talking about your involvement in Rio and and sort of you eventually pulling out of that. But do you like, what do you think of the modern direction of opening ceremonies? Do we need to streamline them into this led because we've got the technology do we want the props back the giant jellyfish that you had in Sydney? like what's your take on how opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies are done compared to when you were more involved in them
1: well yeah i i agree i i think using led and projection and so on for me is is a cop-out the the ceremony for me is designed for the people in the stand in the stadium you've got a live audience and television can look after itself, television can cover the ceremony, but the ceremony has to work for the live audience in the stadium. And to me, it's a real cop-out to have video screens or video projection instead of people with props and costumes, because you may as well stay at home watching television. What's, what's the special experience of paying huge amounts of money to go and sit in a stadium and then watch a television screen? Um, no, so I, I agree that I think the modern ceremonies are the antithesis of what they should be. And I think the, the really wondrous thing about a successful Olympic ceremony is watching human beings mm. instead, of watching, instead of watching technology yeah. uh, to watch human beings. And especially when they're young, you know, and the whole thing about the Olympics, the athletes are young. It is a, a celebration of youth. And you want that exuberance, you want the energy, you want the colour and movement, excitement of all of that. And to do it with a television screen or a projector, to me, is a totally wasted and lost opportunity.
0: Completely agree. How do you think Paris is going to fare with this idea of doing an opening ceremony down, down the Seine? Do you sort of like what they're going to do next year?
1: Yeah, I I mean, we talked about it for Sydney. At one stage, there was a bit of pressure coming on to say, why don't we do it in Sydney Harbour, which was driven by the Tourist Commission who wanted to uh, have pictures of beautiful Sydney Harbour going around the world. But Sydney Harbour, it wouldn't work. And I said, look, you can't do it. You're not going to see the athletes here. The distances are just way too big. And besides, Sydney Harbour is, is not an Olympic stadium. And I still think that Olympic stadiums are kind of fairly important to the notion of a ceremony. However, the SANE, I think, is potentially different because it's only about 100 meters across, um, and people will be able to line the SANE. It, it's like a, a track. Mm. The Sydney Harbour is not, um, but the SANE is a, a straight shot. You can bring the athletes down. They can be close enough to either bank to be seen. Um, I think it's sad in one way that the athletes will just be stuck on boats whereas watching them in the stadium you, know, you can see they dance, they run around, they're obviously having a great time. They're not going to be able to do that on a barge or a boat. They're just going to be stuck there. So I think I doubt whether anyone will do it again. I think the same people will end up watching it and it'll be exactly like watching a parade going by. Uh, fairly lifeless in terms of the Yeah, the exuberance and the emotion of the the athletes. So, uh, you know, I think long-term that won't be repeated. I think it will go back to the stadium.
0: Can you use the top of the Eiffel Tower as the flame? Like, I I don't know what the scope is at the very (laughs) top of the Eiffel Tower. I'm just picturing, like, maybe an archer lighting the the top of the the Eiffel Tower.
1: It's a very good idea. Someone going up there with a cigarette lighter and... (laughs) Slicking a dick at the top. <laughs> um, Very fresh. Yeah, least...
0: <laughs> I put this least... There, towel. <laughs> 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 yeah, at least everyone would be able to see it. <laughs> yes, I like that. I mean, Rick, obviously, before I let you go, I've got a Brisbane, I've, I've read your comments. I was obviously, you know, you said you're retired, but I'm sure if somebody tapped you on the shoulder, you might be kind of uh, willing to maybe put some ideas forth. But I've got some ideas if you know people. If they want to, like, can I pass a couple of ideas to the people if you do get involved in Brisbane to help out? Is that okay?
1: Sure, of course. All right.
0: Okay, first one, talking on big-name music acts, right? Now, a certain band called Savage Garden is from Brisbane, and I know Darren and Daniel don't really talk anymore. They've been split up for a long time. But Brisbane, Home City Olympics, 2032, the Reunion Australia all wants Darren and Daniel back together at the Gabba, 2032. Can we make it happen?
1: Mm, Not on my watch. (laughs) I mean, it's not not a Savage Garden concert, Ben. I keep telling you, the
0: Olympics are bigger than the performers. Well, yeah, okay, I'll give you that one. But okay, right, this one. Now, this is the cauldron idea. Now, I have put this to both the people I think we can get involved. Two iconic Queenslanders, Kieran Perkins and Stephen Bradbury. Now, picture this. 50,000 people at the Gabba. Billions of people around the world. The cauldron is about to be lit. Kieran Perkins has the torch. Everyone, yeah, here he is. Great Queenslander, Kieran Perkins. Yes, he goes to light the cauldron. He falls over. (gasps) What's happened? Kieran's fallen over. Oh, no. Who comes in to pick up the cauldron, the torch? (laughs) Stephen Bradbury lights it. Now, I know he's a winter Olympian, but again, Rick, this is being held in July. That's winter in Australia, technically a Winter Olympics. Stephen and Kieran are both on board. Can we get the Master of Ceremonies on board to pass this on? That's a perfect idea.
1: I can't see why not Accept. and I don't know if you're aware of this, Sally Rhodes, a British astronaut. Sheffield, 1990 or 91, I think. It might even have been 92. I can't remember, early 90s. And Sally Rhodes was the torchbearer, celebrated... Astronaut was Britain's first, and she was running along with the torch, and just getting up to the point where there was a ramp going up to the cauldron. And they'd put a piece of astroturf across from the inside of the track, uh, to the field, across to the track. And there's a running rail that's about two or three inches high that runs all around the track. And some idiot had, had put the astroturf over the top of it. Sally didn't know. Boom! Fell to the ground. Ouch. The torch, the torch fell to the ground and the sterno, because they had a kind of a burning petroleum jelly kind of stuff in the torch, it fell out onto the track and started setting fire to the track. So oh. this poor Sally spread-eagled on the track while officials are busily stamping out flames on the track. So kind of the imagery and the symbolism of stamping out the flame that someone's just been delivering to you. So anyway, they, they lit the cauldron with a bick and the whole thing went on. But
0: um, <laughs> It's a bit too close. On. Yeah. Okay, I see it. But bring Sally in. Is Sally still with us? We can kind of like make a joke out of it the Australian way, right?
1: Well, yeah, and maybe she could keep running while the Australians trip over. Yes, yeah. exactly.
0: Like, yeah. she could be the new Stephen Bradbury, right? Like, it just <laughs> it goes through there. Well, I mean, if, if you want to take some of those ideas, Rick, and, and kind of uh, pass it on. Yeah. But, I mean, like, in all seriousness, again, I, I sort of read your interview comments and that before about sort of that, and I'm not going to touch on your age, Rick. You're still a young spring chicken, but it'd be a nice bookend to your career, of course, wouldn't it? Brisbane 82 for the Commonwealth Games, 2032 for the Olympics. Nice 50-year journey to be involved somehow.
1: Well, it's- does seem incredibly symmetrical yeah i mean look honestly if um brisbane is interested i'd be delighted to have some role i certainly wouldn't be interested or even available to work full time but yeah if i could contribute something useful yeah of course why not
0: there you go you're listening brisbane organizing committee rick's uh rick's happy to put his hand up for some part of it rick mate it's been an absolute honor to sort of reminisce here and go over everything to do with your involvement in sydney and, and other great olympic moments as well and such a pleasure to, to hear from those stories so we we thank you so much for your time here and off the podium and uh hope you uh enjoy those retirement days and uh whatever you hopefully will be involved in in brisbane 2032 if that does come around
1: well thank you ben nice to talk nice to find that sydney is still remembered <laughs> And an absolute
0: incredible honour to hear from Rick there and learn about his involvement. Obviously, mainly in Sydney there, but touching on a few other bits there. Fantastic story about Barcelona, the Archer, of course, lighting the cauldron with that as well. Jetpacks from Barcelona. I didn't even get... uh, Jetpacks from LA, I should say. Didn't even get a chance to touch on some of my favourite Turin memories. Ferrari, Formula One cars, Pavarotti, Ricky Martin in the closing ceremony as well. Beijing, the drums and everything along those lines there too. We could speak to Rick for another eight hours probably just on everything that he's achieved. But we definitely thank Rick for his time. I'm glad we could go over kangaroos on bikes. There's a fun part that people often forget about, the controversy that came after the Atlanta handover ceremony. But hey, LA 2028, there's inflatable kangaroos on bikes still in Rick's basement in LA. So they're ready to go. So, uh... Get on board that. And I'm still going to get someone over the line for my Bradbury Kieran Perkins idea for Brisbane 2032. It's going to happen. Come on. It's a, it's a great idea, but thanks to Rick so much for his time. And if you want to see the video version of this interview, head to our YouTube channel right now, but we have a bonus episode coming your way tomorrow. We often only usually do one a week, obviously, generally, but this week it's different because tomorrow is the day of the 30th anniversary of Sydney being announced. So, Outside of our great Rick Birch interview today, we're going to bring you another one tomorrow. We're chatting to Bob Elphinstone. Now, Bob Elphinstone might not be a name that you're probably thinking, of. I don't know who that is. But he was the general manager of the bid company for Sydney 2000. So this guy was basically one of the guys in control of Sydney bidding for the Olympic Games. He then went on to play a key role in the Sydney Olympics. He was very much involved in the day-to-day running of the Olympic Games during those magical 16 days in September and early October in the year 2000. And Bob gives us a great insight into what it takes to even bid for an Olympic games, the processes involved, the meetings, all the events you've got to go to, who you've got to schmooze up to and just everything that you've got to do. Obviously it's very different in modern times. This was 30 years ago and it was a, it was a big event. It was a committee. You needed a team, an army to go around the world and get them to vote for your city to host an Olympic Games and Bob gives a fantastic insight into what is involved in that and even the history of the Sydney Olympic bid. This wasn't just something thought up in the 80s and hey let's bid for it in the 90s. This was something that realistically Sydney could have hosted the 1988 Olympics. It went to Seoul. So Bob goes into great detail around the initial plan for Sydney to bid for the Olympics and just how that failed Olympic bid process led to not only another Sydney Olympic bid Transforming the City of Sydney. It's a very interesting chat that you're going to learn a lot from. So tune in tomorrow. That is our chat with Bob Elphinstone as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the bid announcement of Sydney 2000. And outside of that, we've got plenty of great interviews and episodes coming your way. Speaking of opening ceremonies, this time next week... We are going back to Calgary, 1988. We are going to be doing our review, continuing our review series of past opening ceremonies. Haven't done this since May, so it's been a few months when we did the Rio one. So we're going back to the 80s for Calgary, 1988. Colin gets a taste of Canada for the first time on this show, so we're excited for that. And then in a couple of weeks' time, I keep talking about being excited. We keep teasing this big-name interview that we've got on the show. And stay tuned, because in two weeks' time, we have that person on this show. And I'm, I'm just going to say it, it's maybe the best interview we've ever done with one of the biggest names we've ever had on this show. So tune in for that in a couple of weeks' time. In the meantime, do all the social media love that you do. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, threads. We're on all of them. YouTube, get on there as well to never miss a video episode. If you've got ideas, suggestions for guests or anybody you want on the show, please flick us a note. And we've got so many exciting things to come your way. We've got great things planned in the next 12 months in the lead up to Paris 2024. I'll be on the ground in Paris next year. What that will entail in terms of what coverage we will bring you, we will soon find out. But just so exciting to be an Olympian fan right now. So get involved in the show. We appreciate your support and we always thank you for tuning in no matter whether it's for five minutes or five hours. We love you. So please keep doing what you do. Big thanks again to Rick Birch for his time here on Off The Podium. As always, remember to put a sock in it, Mountain. Jason Momoa. Do all those things with Razzle Dazzle. And until we next speak again tomorrow here on Off The Podium, remember to go left.